Darren's going to um, teach us for the next two weeks on uh, worship, congregational singing, and that kind of stuff. Is that is that a good a good way to describe what you're going to be talking to us about? Yep. Yep. All right. Great. And uh, I'm going to open with a word of prayer, and then I'm going to let uh, Darren take it away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us to come together to to worship you, to fellowship together. To, uh, to, to glorify your name uh, here in, in this place. And we, we thank you for, for Darren and his abilities. We thank you for bringing him here to this church. And uh, we, uh, we all um, enjoy him immensely in so many ways. And we, we thank you for the profitable time that we'll have this morning uh, with him. And so help us uh, uh, listen, help him as he as he teaches us this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, you're going to need your Bible and your hymnal. Yay. We're, we're going to have some fun today. Um, want to do things a little bit differently just because I can in a Sunday school class, which is a joy for me. Um, obviously, when, when Mark called and said, hey, we're going to be doing a series on whatever you want it to be when you teach, um, whatever your passion is, it was kind of obvious, for lack of a better term, what mine would be, um, since um, Pastor Steve and I often talk about how our jobs are also our hobbies, and it's what we enjoy doing, and, and so much of that is, is true. Um, I just thought, you know what, I can't talk on, on music and, and our expressions of worship without singing a little bit. So take your hymnals, <laughs> and we're going to just unaccompany, we're just going to sing a verse of hymn number 104, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, to kind of get our, our hearts tuned, as the, as the hymn writer writes. Hymn number, it's 104, and... Hopefully I don't blast you away in my microphone as we sing. Um, you, sing you sing better when you stand. Let's stand. We're just going to do one verse. Here we go. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet. Sung by flaming tongues above. Is the mount I'm fixed upon it. Mount of thy redeeming love. Thank you. See, now we have a choir again. All right, people ask, when are we going to have a choir again? You are it. All right, wonderful. Actually, we will have a choir in the future again, Lord willing. Um, the word worship um, has sometimes been a controversial, especially in the last 20 to 30 years uh, of the church. I mean, we've had these things called worship wars. I think a lot of what happens is there's a misunderstanding as to what worship is. We, in our society, worship anything and everything and anyone. Uh, yesterday, there was the royal wedding. 
I could ask for a hands of how many people woke up at three in the morning or whatever it was to watch it. You taped it. I watched a rebroadcast in the afternoon. I, I did. I was I was intrigued. I'm a Commonwealth member and citizen myself, so I two worlds, my Commonwealth and my California. I mean, all came together in one, you know. So two billion people estimated to watch in people. The number one book on the New York Times bestseller list. It's called The Seventeenth Suspect, a book by James Patterson and Maxine Petreo. It's the latest installment in the Women's Murder Club series. In June of 2015, Justin Bieber passed a monumental 59.8 million Twitter followers. That was in 2015. Today... He has, two years ago, it was 59.6 million Twitter followers. But he doesn't even have the most. Who has the most Twitter followers? Any guesses? Donald Trump? Not even close. <laughs> Donald Trump is, is 18th on the list. He has a mere 52 million followers. The number one on the list is Katy Perry with 110 million followers. Uh, who was the most searched person in all of 2017 on Google? Matt Lauer. I think for some very interesting reasons probably. Um, Harvey Weinstein was also among the top five most Googled people. Megan, every one of us from our mother's wombs is an expert in inventing idols. <clears throat> Celebrity worship is not just the only idol. Um, hero worship, though, has twisted our understanding of what true worship really is. So when Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he says, an hour is coming and it now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. So the question is, do we as believers and those in the church, do we worship with less than a biblical view of what worship is? We have to ask ourselves, what constitutes a biblical understanding of worship? And what has been, what part of my worship has, or my even understanding of worship, has been influenced by culture, has been influenced by preferences, has even been influenced by tradition? These things are important to ask us. Thankfully, the Bible is saturated with imagery and language, which informs the Christian how to worship God and what most, uh, and and most importantly, what He defines as truly important. Um, it has been said, I, I I love books because I'm a pastor and we're supposed to. Um, it, it's one of those things. I I can't get enough. People ask me what are my favorite books on worship and. This is the start <laughs> of the ones. Um, if you have not gotten a hold of a copy of this yet, sing, do so. 
I can't recommend this enough. I'm trying to get Pastor Steve to make this a requirement for church membership that you read this. Um, And I don't say that even flippantly. Um, Mark Dever at his church, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., they, in their membership, when you become a member of their church, you sign a 17-page contract. And in that contract is a page and a half that you will contribute to the singing of the church as a believer in Christ. That you are accountable to be one of those who sing. This, I cannot recommend. It is recommended to be sold at $12.99. We sell it in our bookstore for five bucks. So, go get a copy of it. Yeah. Keith and Kristen Getty. Yep. You're halfway through. It is an excellent book. It's an excellent charge to, to anyone. Um, another, another two books here are called Worship Matters by Bob Coughlin, and then he has another one called True Worshippers. Um, you can come look at these afterwards if you want. These are about singing um, and, and musical worship. And another one is called Rhythms of Grace, How the Church's Worship Tells the Story of the Gospel. Um, These are all about music. Now, the rest I have here are not about music, but they're about worship. Uh, John MacArthur's Worship, the Ultimate Priority. Amazing resource. Um, A biography, The Poetic Wonders of Isaac Watts. I just finished this one. If you want to know the history of of, of a man who has given so much to the church and an understanding of, of hymnody and history and, and church music, this is a great one. Um, another one that kind of follows on the line of church history, Then Sings My Soul. There's a, um, these are devotional books. Um, there's a couple volumes in this series. They give the hymn and then they kind of give a little bit of a background to it and everything as well. Um, But two books that I really have enjoyed lately myself. I've not even gotten into my lesson yet. I'm just really, we're told to talk about what we're passionate about. So that's what I'm doing. Um, First one is kind of an obvious one in my opinion. It's called Doxology and Theology. This is more for worship leaders, but I think it is a a highly, highly valuable book for, for anyone Because what it does is it talks about how our theology or our doxology should be an overflow of our theology. Our doxology being our 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 praise, our thanksgiving, our vocal expressions of of praise, our singing, our doxology is an overflow of our theology. A high theology brings about a high doxology. Um, And this is by Matt Boswell. Um, who's the author of our Hymn of the Month, O Church of Christ Invincible. Um, another one that's a little bit different, <clears throat> and it's not directly on worship. Um, this has been some of my bedside reading recently. It's called Defining Deception. This one is written by a gentleman named Costi Hinn. Anyone recognize the last name, Hinn? You'd think, what's going on there? Costi is the nephew of Benny Hinn. And for the last number of decades of his life, um, 
has been involved with his father, his uncle's ministry. Um, he has gotten saved out of it and has written this book, Defining Deception. The interesting thing about this book is he understands the power of music in the life of the church and how manipulative the music has been to dull the senses, to dull the conscience, to dull the mind so that you are receptive to anything and everything. Um, Because that is what he says his uncle does. And he shows how places like um, Bethel Church up in Redding, California and Hillsong, based out of Australia, but has, including in Los Angeles, and they're some of the largest churches in the world, um, how they use music to bring about deception into the church. And it's not by accident that they're doing it. Yes. Defining deception. It's a fascinating, bit of a scary read in some... What's that? This is not in the library here, but it's on on Amazon. So... Um, and Costi actually has been, uh, he's, he's just finishing up a seminary degree, not from Master Seminary, but um, he pastors a church down in Orange County now. Um, and he's actually been working with John MacArthur. In fact, MacArthur did the foreword on this one. So, C-O-S-T-I. Yeah. So, another great book. Um, but what is worship? I mean, I, I've kind of giving you a bunch of resources that you can kind of go to, to to get a broader understanding. And I'm glad I kind of have two weeks to, to go over this. Today, I'm going to give a little bit more of a, of a concrete definition of worship. What is a biblical definition? How do we understand it? And I'll give you this forewarning right now. I'm not talking about music today. Next week, I'm going to do a little bit more of an exegetical look at some scriptures, uh, primarily in the Psalms. But today, I want to give a a broad overview of what defines worship. As I said, the Bible is saturated with imagery and language, which informs the Christian how to worship God, and most importantly, what God defines as truly important in our worship. And the first thing he defines, and the first thing that we have to understand, is that worship is sacrifice. Sacrifice is something that we don't like in our culture. We want what is ours and we want it now. And we even want what is not ours. Why? Because we're selfish. Yet worship demands sacrifice. Paul says in Romans 12 verse 1, which is, theme verse for any worship pastor in my opinion should be therefore I urge you brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living and holy what sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship I don't hear praise songs being talked about there hear about sacrifice when you what was the only appropriate way to come into the presence of the Lord 
No, with sacrifice. Yes. <laughs> Either someone or something had to die. Blood had to be poured. Sacrifice was important. Old Testament sacrifice was bloody in a way that we can't even comprehend. Either uh, animal sacrifices, though, never completely satisfied that relationship between God and man, though, did they? Why? Because every year, the high priest had to go into the temple on the Day of Atonement, into the Holy of Holies, and he had to sacrifice Again, for the sins of the nation. Every week, people had to be offering sacrifices. Like three times a year, they had to go to Jerusalem, offer sacrifices. They had to continually do that. And this, it was just this constant flow of blood until an act of sacrificial worship performed by the God-man himself, Jesus Christ, would eternally appease both God's wrath and pay the price for man's sin. So Christ on the cross, his dying and giving up of himself is truly the greatest act of worship. Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to cover all our sins because Hebrews 10 says every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Christ pouring out his life is the single greatest act of worship. That should inspire us to what? To kind of a holy reverence and an awe. Jesus' sacrifice really permitted God's uh, permitted God to dwell among his people, his sinful people. Um, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Worship, again, required blood. It required sacrifice. There's a great song from, I don't even know when it was, um, probably mid-80s, early 90s, by Larnell Harris and Keith Green called When Praise Demands a Sacrifice. And it goes, When praise demands a sacrifice, I'll worship even then. It talks about how Abraham had to bring his son and he was going to sacrifice Isaac on the altar as an act of worship. It talks about Christ offering himself as that single greatest act of worship. So when praise demands a sacrifice, I'll worship even then. In fact, you can't worship without that sacrifice. So now when when we can worship now we can worship God in whatever way we feel like, right? However we want. Right? 
<laughs> Thank you for saying no. Um, that that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. When it, when it came to sacrifice, ex- exact, strict adherence to the law was mandatory or it was unacceptable and detestable to God. The New Testament does not release your restriction upon your worship. I like to think, well, Christ has done the sacrifice, so now I can do whatever I want. No, 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 no. Paul says to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. And then there's a second part to that. Acceptable to God. What does it mean to be acceptable to God? Presenting ourselves as a sacrifice by keeping our lives pure and clean and separate from all defilement. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, he says, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Peter commands the church to understand that sacrifices of the heart and will is what he finds and only the, the only thing he finds acceptable, a sacrifice of the heart. King David understood that mandate that worship required a sacrifice. If you remember the story, it's in um, it's in Second Samuel. David is is they've they've won this great conquest, and David is is offered this field by by um can't remember his name by a farmer. Um, to and he says, "You can come. I'm going to give you the land, and you can offer burnt sacrifices and do all these kinds of things. I'm just going to give this to you, David, um, because you're the king, and and I don't want to charge you or anything." And David's response to him, because this was the worship of God that David was coming before the Lord to do. David's response in Second Samuel 24 was, was this. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. You can give me the land, but I'm sorry. I'm going to give you money for this because I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. Worship is costly. That's why when we have a worship service, we have a worship service, not a music service. Because every part of our worship service is worship. From the time you arrive in this building, your communication with each other is an act of worship. You say, oh, I'm a, I'm a little bit more of an introvert. I'm sorry. You're in the body of Christ. You're not allowed to be a total introvert. You need to invest in people's lives. You need to let other people invest in you as well. That is an act of worship. Your giving on Sunday morning is an act of worship. I had a friend in seminary who, his wife controlled the finances of the home because he was terrible with spending money. Um, and, and she was much more sticky with it. And so 
every week they would sit down and go, okay, what are we going to give this week to the church? And they were not well off. They were, they were seminary students. He was working three jobs. She had to work one. And, and he was working on two degrees in seminary. They were working hard. And every week they would sit down, what can we give? And she goes, this is what we can give. And he would always say, what's going to hurt us by what we give? That's worship. That is true worship. That sacrificial cost. Not giving out of what your abundance is. Jesus had a lot to say about that when the woman with two mites came. It is about sacrifice. It's kind of funny because sometimes people will come up to me and go, so if you say this and I I give you a little smile and a wink and a sarcastic remark, you'll understand why now. Um, People will go, oh, I loved the worship this morning. And I go, that's great. Which part was it? (laughs) Did you enjoy the preaching? Did you enjoy the offering? What about the pastoral prayer? What about the scripture reading? What part did minister to you today? And then I kind of wink and then kind of, yeah, okay. It's all worship. It's all worship. All of that. What we do up on this platform is not your worship. We are simply assisting you to sacrifice. Your singing, I'm not a singer, I'm not a musician. Sacrifice your pride and sing. This is worship. You don't get to choose. One of the greatest commandments or one of the most called for commandments in all of Scripture is what? Do you know? Anyone know? Huh? Loud? The, one of the most used commandments in all of Scripture is to sing. It's one of the top ones. So if you say, I'm not a singer, sorry, then sacrifice your pride. Learn to sing. You weren't a driver when you woke up or when you, when you came out of the womb. You learned to drive. And I hope you've gotten better at it since then, since you got your learns. I'm not a singer. Learn to sing. Learn to sing. Sacrifice. You're not offering blood. You're offering yourself as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. I'm not asking for perfection. I'm asking for a heart. And I'm not even asking for it. The Lord is. And that leads me to my second thing that worship is. Worship is about posture. The biblical definition of worship has nothing to do with music. When Scripture speaks of worship in both the Old and New Testament, it refers to an understanding of posture. In fact, the Greek word for worship is proskuneo. And it describes this act of stooping down to kiss the earth. That is what the word worship means. To stoop down, kiss the earth. To lie prostrate on the ground before another person or a deity. The Greeks 
They eventually abandoned the practice of physically kind of prostrating themselves, uh, but kept that turn as, term as an inward attitude of humility. Um, and, and eventually that evolved into a term of general, generally of, of, of love and respect, an expression of that. For Jewish believers, however, that was the Greeks who did that, proskuneo remained a very reverential term that was reserved strictly for deity and maintained in that Jewish act of bowing down and kissing or serving. Uh, you see that when you go to Israel today, you go to the Western Wall, and what are they doing? They're bowing constantly. Um, but Jesus was a, was, a, was a recipient of this. He was the object of many people kind of prosconeoing themselves before him in his earthly life. In his birth, in Matthew's account of, of his birth, he includes the wise men, Gentile men who came to Bethlehem with the intent to worship. Proskuneo is the word. To prostrate themselves before him. Even though they were Gentiles, they recognized that this child was unique and deserving of worship, giving him the respect that was reserved strictly for deity. When, when Jesus appeared after the resurrection, immediately the disciples responded with what? Proskuneo again. It says, Behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came and up and looked and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. What they were what were they indicating by bowing down low? They demonstrated a knowledge of who was due reverence and honor. Um, when one bows down, that simple act of doing that, what does it do? If I'm like this before somebody, I'm in a very vulnerable position, especially in, in that time frame. Because why? Because everybody had a sword. And when you're like that, what is exposed? The back of your neck. You're saying, this person, I'm putting my life in your hands. Your very livelihood is given into the hands of the one whom you worship. Written in the Ten Commandments, the Jewish mandate to bow down before only the one true God is commanded for fear of great retribution by the Lord. Um, this further emphasizes the point that when Jewish people bowed before Jesus, they understood the impact. They knew what they were doing. It was a bold statement, and there was great consequences for such an action. They knew the Ten Commandments. So when they bowed down before Jesus, they knew what they were doing. However, does physically bowing down still apply to the worship of the New Testament church? I mean, it would be virtually impossible for all of us on a Sunday morning to spend our entire time on our faces in, in this building. Um, do we need to do that? Should we? I'm going to say no. I'll tell you why. John the Baptist demonstrated that this is a heart attitude more than a physical posture. In John chapter 1, he says, After me comes a man 
who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. The church reflects this when it structures worship to properly acknowledge Christ as its head. Its primary goal seeks to honor him rather than to appease your personal preference or your traditions or how you would want it to be. It is that humble heart attitude. It's not necessarily a physical posture. It's a heart posture. The nice thing is we're, we're gathering for corporate worship here in about 40 minutes. <laughs> Actually, we're already in corporate worship right now. But we'll, we'll be gathering in, in many aspects. I mean, today we have the wonderful opportunity to take the Lord's Supper. This is a great opportunity of worship. Because if you have not proskuneoed yourself before the Lord, before taking that, he actually talks very harshly about that in Scripture. Humble yourselves in worship. So there's sacrifice. There's posture. And I want to say the third kind of aspect to worship to, to look at is service. I said at the beginning that that high theology produces a high doxology. Worship should spur us on to service. As one of the first acts of worship found in all of Scripture, and Adam is commanded by God to serve and to take care of the earth in Genesis 2.15. Work and service were not consequences of sin. The fall had not happened yet. Work and service are acts of worship to a holy God. They are not consequences of sin. They are meant to be worship. When you go to your job, you work as unto the Lord. After the fall, in Genesis 3, work became laborious and exemplified the dissatisfaction that grew with alienation. That, hap- that existed between God and man. However, that was not the intended purpose for work. For in work, you worship. Do you, throughout the week, worship? You need to ask yourself that Monday morning. Actually, Monday morning, sometimes you're still coming off the high from Sunday. Ask yourself Thursday morning. Am I still a worshiper? Am I serving the Lord? Um, Work and service should be an outpouring of joy and thanksgiving, an opportunity to give back to God for all that he has done. It should be, I love my job. I have the, I mean, I'm spoiled in the fact that part of my job is to study the scriptures. I really am spoiled. I'll totally admit that. I see that. I'll tell you, though, when studying the scriptures becomes your job, you actually have to check your heart even more because it can become your job and not your worship. That's one thing they warned us of in seminary. Do not let this just simply become a textbook to you. It is still the living and active word of God. So in some respects... It's harder to be in ministry to keep this thing, this book, fresh and alive. 
because it can become a tool in the belt. The Greeks had a very negative view of work or service. For a Greek, it was an undignified thing to work, so they had other people <laughs> do their work for them. The Greeks ruled, and, and, and they weren't going to be subject to anyone or anything. I don't think they're much different than our society. You can't tell me what to do. I know you've heard that before. You've probably said it yourself. You're sounding just like a Greek when you say that. Yet for the believer... Service and work are an outpouring of love that mirrors our service to our master. So it's to be a joy. Jesus, Jesus explains that great reward comes through service and faithfulness and in diligence. He says, Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. As a servant serves his benevolent master. I mean, we think of Christ himself. What did Christ do on the night before he was to be crucified? He washed the feet of his disciples. He served. He worshipped. First of all, that should humble you like nothing else. That should prosca nail you on the floor. Christ turned the tables, and the master served the servants. Greeks and Jews understood that work was necessary, but this reversal of roles that Jesus did was revolutionary. Jesus clarified to them, he says, but it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. To the Greek who viewed a servant as the lowest position, Jesus did what? He exalted it. He exalted service and demonstrated true worship and offers himself as that supreme example. So the worship of God, the nice thing is, it, it, it remains unchanged at its core. Like I said, is, the, is worship about music? I hope you figured out it's not. Can we express worship through music? Yes. We absolutely can express worship through music, but worship itself or music itself is not worship. So stop calling it that. Let's use good terms. Let's use terms that define. Even though, I mean, Christian radio and, and everything like that uses that term, rise above it. Rise above it. Um, the worship of God remains unchanged. The heart is the biggest issue with which the Lord is concerned. It is paramount. 
Well, practices and cultures may have changed. I mean, some, I grew up in, 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 uh, in an understanding that the organ was the holiest instrument that the Lord has ever created. And the hymn book was almost as inspired as the, as the scriptures itself. Now, I love the hymn book. I do. I especially love this one. <laughs> um, I, I love the hymn book. There's a reason we sing out of it. Because I think, I mean, I could go into the, all the reasons for why we sing out of the hymn book. Um, but it was also written by other sinful men. It's not inspired. In fact, this one has spelling errors. This one has musical theory errors like crazy. It does. And yet, it's still a great resource. But it's not inspired. That's why we don't sing exclusively out of it. Um, the organ. I mean, really, the, when people talk about the organ, they're thinking about the invention that was made in the 16th century. I go, so what did the church do for the first 15, 1,500 years of its existence? They didn't worship? What about those in the catacombs that had to be silent? Otherwise, they would be killed. What about the underground church in China that risks prison if they get found out? So they can't sing loud. Are they not worshiping? Because they're not running around with their arms waving in the wind and singing at the top of the lungs and they don't have a big massive worship band. No. In fact, I almost want to say their worship is probably more pure <laughs> in some regards. Untainted. So worship is unchanged at its core. Musical stylings, cultures, come and go. But worship remains essential at its core. If you don't like it, that's not my problem. If I were to, and I'll, I'll just go on a little bit of a soapbox right now because I'm just finishing up. <laughs> when it comes to the musical side of things, if I were to try and cater to you, just in this congregation, I would have 250 different opinions on how it should be done. Thankfully, not to put, not to humble, actually to humble you, yes, I don't care what you think. <laughs> I serve one person. And it's not Pastor Steve and it's not one of the elders. Um, our worship is dictated by scripture. And just to give you a little insight into how I plan a service, You'll see it today. Today's service is based off of Psalm 111. It's not off of songs I like. It's based off of what exegetes the scriptures. Psalm 111 is my outline for worship today, for our musical worship. So it's not my preferences. Now, granted, I like the stuff we do. <laughs> I wouldn't mind. We've done it here. We've had... We've done stuff that I'm not the biggest fan of. I wouldn't be listening to it in my own car. Um, and we've done stuff that totally resonates with my own musical preferences. If we had my choice, we'd be singing Bach every Sunday. 
but it's not about my preferences. It's not about your preferences. It's about sacrificially coming before the Lord, sacrificing ourselves. Worship involves costly sacrifice. Worship involves a humbled posture. And worship involves willing service. It's not about the latest music or it's not about time-honored traditions or that which makes me nostalgic because that song just takes me back to when I was a little child. Instead, the heart of worship echoes the words of John the Baptist in John chapter 3. And with this, I'm going to close. It's a simple seven words. He must increase, but I must decrease. That is worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know even in just going over these notes myself over the last couple days, you've challenged my own heart. You've caused me to examine where I have put myself in a place I should never be. And I've given myself too much credit. And Lord, I know that we all fight the flesh each and every day. Guide our worship, not just in the corporate gathering, but in our daily lives. May we follow after what Paul told us and commanded us by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit in Romans 12 to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. May that be our worship today, tomorrow, and for the rest of our days. until you take us home or you come and return to take us home when we meet you in the air where we will worship you for all eternity as you deserve. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.